Hi, everyone. Welcome to the fifth episode in the ongoing series here on Farm Chatter, Spanish Jury Through the Ages. So on this episode of the series, we'll be discussing um, Jewish women uh, in Catalonia. So to kind of give you kind of a brief overview, until now... I know it's been a bunch of broad overviews, kind of, but we were really focused on Muslim Spain, which at the time, uh, even though Spain wasn't a country, it was kind of South Spain, the south of the Iberian Peninsula. But kind of, we will begin to move forward you know, north towards the Christian kingdoms, and eventually they'll become united, and we'll get to that part of the story as the series progresses. But in this episode, I especially thought it was a good idea to put this here uh, last week, uh, the episode, the previous episode, uh, had Professor Mark Herman, and we kind of gave a, a broad, you know, overview looking at various Talmudist halachists, uh, kind of the gedolim of Muslim Spain. So now it kind of, you know, to, made sense to put a discussion discussing women and men, but uh, with a focus on women, kind of the everyday lives of people, but in Catalonia. So Catalonia is, like I said, it's uh, northeast Spain. Today, and that would be, it ended up being under the Kingdom of Aragon, but Catalonia is where famous Barcelona, Girona, so Dramban, the Rajba, Rabiena, Gerondi, or Girona. So think of a lot of the Rishen and being uh, that your listeners are probably familiar with are in this area and uh, this this time period on discussion about 13th century. So I figured it made sense to put it here. I know, I think in the intro of the last episode, I did mention discussing the Papal Inquisition, the precursor to the Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition, I'm sorry, the, the precursor to the Spanish Inquisition. But that that will be forthcoming. I kind of, you know, forgot about this episode, that this it made sense to put this episode here. So uh, this episode will be here. I, I will mention also in the beginning, you may hear me talking a little, almost generally about certain things. That's kind of because I recorded this actually uh kind of before I had the idea for the series. This was recorded as like a standalone, standard Svarim Chatter uh, podcast. But uh, it's now part of the series. It, made sense, it makes sense to include in the series, I think. So um, enjoy. And uh, if you have any uh, feedback, as always, looking forward to any feedback. I've had feedback on the series, what people think on some of the episodes, some of the guests. But, you know, again, stay tuned. There's many more episodes to come. I do want to thank once again, as always, the corporate sponsor of the series, uh, here on Farm Chatter, and that that is Glock Plumbing. So for all your service needs, big or small in New Jersey, with a full service division from boiler changeouts, main sewer line snakeouts, cameraing main lines to a simple faucet leak, Glock Plumbing service division as you covered, give them a call, 732-523-1836, extension 1. Again, 732-523-1836, extension 1. And uh, really, if you have any plumbing issues, you really should call them. They are fantastic. And you should also mention, of course, that you heard about it on Farm Chatter. Uh, so, and I thank them again for their uh, generosity and sponsoring this series again, as well as the previous Shopsy TV series. Uh, so there is that as well. Um, and I would like to mention as usual, if anyone wants to sponsor an episode of this series, you can email me. Uh, also now you can Zelle or QuickPay. Any amount is appreciated. And that is not, uh, sorry, Zelle and the QuickPay is farmchatter at gmail.com. That will be in the show's notes. Uh, there's also a link via PayPal. And uh, for those, I know many of you have subscribed and rated and review, you can do so um, on Apple. Much appreciated. Spotify, I've mentioned 24-6 a bunch of times, the kind of quote-unquote Jewish Spotify. If you don't have it, by the way, check it out. Uh, 24-6.app, you should check out a uh, fantastic service. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, if you can uh, check it out. And then there's always, I, you know, any feedback 
Um, any guest suggestions? Most of the series has been, you know, kind of recorded, but if you have any feedback or anything you want to uh, let me know, email me again, farmchatter@gmail.com. And I would like to mention um, that the website, uh, so you can go onto the website and there should be a box that like, pops up to sign up for email. We finally got it up and running that will send out email updates. So if you are signed up, you should be able to get an email when a new episode is out. Um, some, and you should be able to download it there on the bottom. I'm not sure exactly all the specifics of that. Um, and I am working as well on a call-in number. There's been, I've gotten a number of requests for that. So still working on that, but don't have it all uh, sorted out exactly. So with that, enjoy this episode uh, of the series. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Sfarim Chatter Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor Sarah Ift Decker, who is the assist- assistant professor of history at Rhodes College and the host of the media... media- Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, her own podcast, and we'll be discussing her new book, which is titled The Fruit of Her Hands, Jewish and Christian Women's Work in Medieval Catalan Cities, which is published by Penn State University Press. So thank you, uh, Professor Ifdecker, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start off. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Of course. So as uh, you've already mentioned, I'm a professor of history, assistant professor of history at Rhodes College, which is in Memphis, Tennessee, where I've been uh, for this is my third year now. Uh, prior to that, I was at uh, Indiana University as a postdoc in the Bourne's Jewish Studies program. And before that, I got my PhD in 2017 from Yale University in the history department. And I'm a social and economic historian of the Western Mediterranean. And I'm especially interested in intersections between gender and religious difference, broadly defined. So uh, this book is obviously one facet of that. And then I have other things that are linked to that as well, that are uh, kind of linked to other projects that I have in the works at this stage. Okay. So, and mainly you're interested in medieval history. I mean, how did that, that's just yes. interested in? Yes. So actually started with a family trip to England that I'd always kind of liked history and uh, decided since I was going to England, I would read a little bit about non-American history, since as many American listeners know, we have an overemphasis, I think, on American history in, uh, in our schools. And so really, that's all I'd done. So I decided to read some English history and started in the Middle Ages and never really left. And just really loved the opportunity to then go and actually see these things in person that I'd been reading about. And then when I was in college, my advisor basically uh, talked me and one other medievalist into uh, doing an undergraduate thesis, actually starting to work with the same kinds of records that I ended up working with in the book. And between his suggestions and the time that I spent uh, in the city of Girona in Catalonia in uh, that summer when I was an undergrad, really managed to convince me that Catalonia had much better weather, better food, and better documents than England. So I became a, a full convert to the Mediterranean. Okay. So you, you mentioned Mediterranean and mentioned Catalonia, those three main cities discussed in your book yes. here, Barcelona, <clears throat> Girona, Vic. And and we should, I guess, kind of kind of start off over here. I mean, I, um, Spain versus the Mediterranean. Catalonia. Yes. Where is Catalonia? <laughs> give, give the listeners a little bit of exp- background explanation where, where what, what your book is focused on and what you've been focused on. Yes. So first of all, I'll give some of this geographical context, right? So Catalonia is in the northeast of what is now Spain, 
But of course, in the period that I'm looking at, there was no such entity as Spain, politically speaking. So Catalonia at that time belonged to a political entity known as the Crown of Aragon, which is uh, what we call a federative monarchy, by which we mean basically there are a bunch of little kingdoms and principalities that had essentially their own systems in place, but that all were under the rule of a single king. So, and that is uh, Aragon itself, Catalonia, eventually Valencia, uh, and eventually also Sicily, actually. So uh, that is the crown of Aragon. So that is a kind of political entity. And on the one hand, we often talk about Spain because, of course, that's what became a country. But when we actually look at this period, there are certainly an argument to be made that it is potentially even kind of more useful to think about this region of Catalonia or the crown of Aragon as a kingdom in the context kind of more widely of the Mediterranean or the Western Mediterranean. So thinking about essentially this place as having a lot of really important connections uh, with Southern France, uh, with uh, what is now the, with the Italian peninsula, and uh, that this is a kind of big part of this history is thinking of these kind of wider Mediterranean connections that to some extent are arguably more significant culturally speaking than links with the kingdom of Castile that it would eventually unite with to form Spain. Uh, and of course, there's the current kind of political challenges that many people in Catalonia uh, would rather not, in fact, be part of Spain. So that certainly kind of adds to this dynamic as well. Right. And so there were different, like I said, the, the connection was was different with South, like again, calling it Spain, mm-hmm. Spain now. And yeah. So Catalonia, we're talking about also was a Christian kingdom, right? Yes. So uh, Catalonia, the kind of the kind of areas that I'm looking at are really kind of very fully and securely under Christian rule by, you know, by the ninth century. And uh, so really, we see much less of kind of signs of Muslim influence than you do in in the southern part of the Iberian Peninsula, the the kind of geographical term that we sometimes use. Uh, So, you know, the area that we so, you know, uh, Al-Andalus or what is now Andalusia. So, yeah, that would be an area that you can really see uh, the very directly the signs of Muslim influence, and that's much less the case. And in fact, uh, my my book, so my book is uh, The Fruit of Her Hands, Jewish and Christian Women's Work in uh, Medieval Catalan Cities. The reason it does not really include Muslim women, uh, they Garma had mentioned briefly, is because the, the only Muslim women that I actually see in the documentation are enslaved women. And uh, so we have a very kind of different understanding in these documents of uh, the kind of work that they performed. So it looks very different. Okay, so now you, your book, as you said, as the title says, you focus on women from this time period. I mean, why focus on women specifically? And, and there are men that come up throughout the book, of course, in, in the business dealings and a lot in the book. But why is that something that you chose to, to focus your research on? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that is, uh, to me, I think is incredibly important as part of our our kind of research moving forward is to think about the ways that gender really is shaping the options available to people. And so often, you know, when we talk about, you know, work, when we talk about economics, when we talk about Jewish economic life, really most of the time, they kind of say Jews and they mean Jewish men, uh, or they say, you know, the economy of the crown of Aragon, and mostly they mean what men were doing. And in order to really have a fuller and richer picture, we need to also talk about how gender factors into that. And so what it is precisely that women are doing or not doing, and how is that related to economic life? And so that was something that was a big priority of mine was to really kind of focus in on what it is precisely that women, uh, as I said, are or are not able to do. 
Yeah, I was going to ask this later, and this comes up later on in the book, a couple chapters in, but I'll ask it here because this is what we're discussing is, so what mm-hmm. did women do? And we'll get back to the sources and, and more of that, but just generally speaking, to start, the, I mean, what generally were women doing work-wise if they were doing some sort of work at the time period? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so there's a, there's a range of things. And I'll mention first that there is a range of things that I see in my documents. And then there's things that I'm sure women are doing that are kind of hinted at in other sources that I don't actually see in my documents. So the things that I see women doing a lot of are work in the credit market. And that is both Christian and Jewish women, that uh, there is this kind of popular narrative, right, of Jews as dominating credit markets. Uh, we know for a variety of reasons that that's not in fact the case, that Jews are doing other things and that Christians are also involved in credit. And in fact, I found that Christian women are much more active in credit than Jewish women are in most of the cities that I looked up. But we also see women of both faiths as involved in real estate, in real estate markets. So in the buying and selling and management of property as landlords. We also see uh, women as involved in various trades. Uh, So the one that I see both Jewish and Christian women in is uh, the textile industry, with Jewish women being especially involved in silk weaving. And then also I see uh, Christian women in particular in the documentation as involved in, uh, in baking as well and in leather working. Uh, And then there's also a lot of things I think that in terms of the documents that I have, I think in particular women's involvement in, for example, the food trades is probably really underestimated because it would be the kind of thing where if you're, you know, making bread or trying to think of another kind of food uh, (laughs) or, you know, catching and selling fish or so, you know things like this, right? You you don't actually need to create a contract for this if you're just kind of selling items for cash that, you know, this is the kind of thing that even today, right? Most people say like, you know, don't, don't bother giving, giving me my receipt for this even. So, uh, you know, that kind of thing, that immediate exchange of goods for cash, something like that wouldn't show up in my documentation. So, uh, so the, you know, there's definitely things that I can't see, but uh, yeah, but also a lot that I can and a lot that does really highlight the fact that even though women are never as heavily involved in any of these things as men, but nevertheless, there's often this perception, right? When we look at the medieval past that women are just oppressed and aren't allowed to do anything. And in fact, when we look at what women are doing, we can see that, Women can women you know can take for granted that at least legally speaking they are allowed to own property. They are allowed to take out credit in their own names, and these are things that women couldn't necessarily guarantee that they were allowed to do in many places in the United States in the 1950s. So, just to clarify one thing, you you say when women are engaged in credit, can you just explain a little bit more what what do you mean by that? With yes, credit. Explain for listeners what you mean mm-hmm. by that. Yeah. uh, So I'm talking about uh, the lending of money in particular is uh, most of what I'm looking at. And when I say that, I'm mostly talking about uh, relatively small scale lending for women in particular, but also most men for that matter, that a lot of the loans that you're making are uh, what we call consumption loans, basically uh, relatively small sums that you would expect that you would be able to ideally, in theory, at least, depending on how many loans you've taken out, uh, ideally, in theory, be able to kind of pay back basically in the next few months. Uh, To some extent, it's a kind of system of small-scale credit, which is uh, something that, to some extent, you can almost kind of think about as a system that you have in lieu of having credit cards. So that's most of what we're talking about. And so these would be loans that uh, the, the difference that you do see is that 
Jews are allowed to lend money at interest. And that is something that then that is regulated, but that you often see referred to overtly in loan contracts. So the uh, permitted interest rate in the crown of Aragon is 20% per year. So uh, you see some contracts where it overtly states that is the interest rate. Sometimes you see contracts where you'll see something like, if the loan is paid back in the next three months, then you can pay it back without interest. And if you take longer, then the this interest rate starts kicking in. Uh, for Christians, they tend to not overtly at least state that they are lending money at interest, but probably in practice are, so that they would do things like be a little flexible about what they actually state is the amount of the money, amount of money being loaned. So maybe you say that you're loaning the the unit of currency is sue. Maybe you say you're loaning 20 sue, but really you loan 15 sue, but would like to be paid back 20 sue, things like that. And this is because at the time the church viewed Christians not being able to view other Christians with interest while Jews were allowed to. Yes. So there there are certainly loopholes as well that the church acknowledges as being acceptable. They'll increasingly say, okay, like if you lend at really low rates of interest, that's fine. But that at least in theory, the ideal often still is that, well, you shouldn't just do a kind of straight loan at interest, uh, even though, as I said, there, there are a number of loopholes that the church is basically permitting at this stage. Okay. So, um, what in, in in your book, I said you met, you mainly focus on three cities, Barcelona, Girona, Vic. Uh, let's talk about those three cities. Why those three yes. cities? We should discuss them a little bit. And also, what time period we're discussing? I don't know if we mentioned exactly yes. what time period. Yes. So I'm looking at the century between 1250 and 1350. And at this point, I'm also going to take the liberty of saying a little bit more about the documents because that's related to my choice of cities. So the documents that I'm mostly working with are uh, notarial registers. So basically, these are big books of contracts. And notaries are legal professionals who had the expertise in drawing up contracts and also are figures with public authority, which means that the fact that they've drawn up this contract and recorded it in their own records means that it is something that can uh, become enforceable, that it is considered to be a public fact at this stage. And uh, we start to see a real rise in the number of these registers of basically these books of contracts that the notaries are keeping for their own records. We start to see more and more of those in right about the mid 13th century. So uh, that's why I started essentially in that period and decided to end around 1350, in part because of the uh, that is shortly after the Black Death, which is a kind of interesting turning point, this medieval pandemic. And then also then because... Uh, uh, it has actually ends up uh, in part being a convenience in that the amount of notarial documentation really skyrockets after 1350. So it's a slightly more manageable array of material if I stop before 1350. And so then I have these three cities, which I chose in part because they're all cities that do have rich notarial documentation for this period, whereas there are other cities in the region where maybe we don't have much that survives until, say, after 1350. And that's in part an accident of survival. So that's one of the reasons that I selected these three cities, but also that I was really interested in thinking about how we can maybe say things more broadly about the region by recognizing some of the differences between local particularities and regional patterns. So that I, first of all, definitely wanted to do more than one city as opposed to doing the very kind of focused single city regional study. 
But also that I wanted it to have cities that looked different in various ways. There are cities with different sizes and economic profiles. Barcelona is probably the city that I would say definitely pretty much all of your listeners have heard of. Uh, in that, you know, Barcelona is, of course, a major city. It is a capital city. It remains a major city. And uh, so this is, you know, a was kind of an obvious place in a lot of ways, right, that Barcelona is to some extent kind of unparalleled locally. It is the most substantial city. Uh, Girona is, belongs to the the kind of next tier of cities in terms of uh, in terms of size and in terms of its importance in local economies. And then Vic is kind of a mid-sized town. And uh, the other reason I will note that I selected these three cities in particular is, of course, because these are all cities that, that we know to have Jewish communities and that we have some amount of documentation for these Jewish communities as well. Right. OK, now, how are these cities all near each other? What is the distance between them? They're relatively nearby. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't remember offhand because my brain does not process these things, the exact kind of miles and kilometers. But just to kind of give you a sense of the actual sort of experience of this. Uh, so in, in Catalonia today, you can get a train to pretty much anywhere in Catalonia from Barcelona, if not necessarily, you know, between places outside Barcelona. So it would be on the higher speed train about... 90 minutes to get down the, or the kind of mid-speed train, it would be about 90 minutes to get to Girona and about 90 minutes also to get to Vic, but on a train that's a bit slower. And uh, then let's see, I have gone from Girona to Vic before. And I think that is like a couple hours on a bus is, uh, is what I've done before. So, uh, so, you know, they're, they're not too far from each other. And so you can kind of look at these cities as a kind of a, a sort of triangle in that they're all kind of generally the same area, but, you know, not immediately next to one another. Right. You can look at all. I mean, in your book, there's a map that shows them. Yeah, they're basically. Yeah, yeah. You can, you can see them easily on a map together. Yeah. Okay. So as you mentioned, you focus a lot on these, these notaries, notarial documents, and we'll discuss that more about how you use it, how you use them in the book. So the book is kind of three, three different parts. We should discuss the right. There's family law, mm-hmm. notarial culture, and then woman's work, which I guess it's all woven together, but you're like, it's, it's yeah. okay. So, so, so marriage is the first thing you talk about. And you kind of have this, some of the chapters are alternate between Christian and Jewish woman, but um, obviously we'll focus more on, on Jewish woman, but discuss mm-hmm. the, the Christian as well. And how does it compare? So, I mean, marriage, what was the, the system? You go through financial contributions of the woman and, and different things that you can see in these documentation and, and others. I, I should mention, and you'll, I'm sure you'll get more to this. You do use some other sources as well besides notarial. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, and, and I'll note for marriage in particular, when I'm talking about the Jewish context, ton, uh, context I also work a lot with Hebrew response literature. Uh, so, the uh, so, of course, kind of thinking about these uh, these questions sent to rabbis and the rabbis' responses. Um, and I'll note also, actually, for, for listeners, that a lot of the responses sometimes that we see being kind of put out today are often kind of talking about kind of very big issues facing the Jewish community in a kind of wider sense, whereas a lot of the medieval responses are very, very kind of specific pieces of case law in some ways that they're, you know, they're like, they're addressing at least kind of specific cases. We don't often know that many details because a lot of the identifying information is cut out. So we don't, you know, the names are usually replaced with pseudonyms. So everyone is Ruvain and, you know, uh, Ruvain and Shimon and Rachel and Leah. Um, and we don't know what their real names were, but that, you know, we have these kind of specific cases and that's what the rabbis are weighing in on and the responses that we have generally, that only a relatively small number of them are kind of like big meta issues that are facing Jewish communities. 
And so one of the things that I found really striking looking at uh, the Jewish context in particular is uh, that we do certainly see that one of the things that uh, rabbis are very invested in is often in uh, limiting, you know, in terms of how they are understanding the halakha is that they're very invested in limiting the extent to which women can control essentially the property that belongs to the couple during a marriage. So that the way this tends to work is that uh, basically everybody comes into the marriage, ideally, especially if you're talking about wealthy families with some property. And so the woman comes into marriage with a dowry. She is also promised in her ketubah. And we sometimes see Latin contracts referring to this as well, uh, that she's promised this additional sum of money. We have the sum of money also called the ketubah, this kind of often small and symbolic sum. And then the tosefet ketubah, which is a kind of the supplement to the ketubah, which is usually a somewhat larger sum of money. And so we have this uh, this kind of property that are, uh, you, know, you know, financial resources that women own, but that ownership and management are not necessarily the same thing that you own this. And the idea is that, okay, when you're widowed, you can get this back. But during the time when you're married, the husband's job is to control this wealth. And uh, one of the things in particular that I find really striking is that uh, thinking about this in a comparative context, in the crown of Aragon, uh, there is this really interesting system that among Christians, it is, I don't, I hesitate to quite say normal, but it certainly is uh, not unheard of that women will sue for the return of their dowry, basically if their husband is about to go bankrupt. So basically, he's done a bad job of managing my money, so I want it back before he fritters it all away into his debts. And this is something that, you know, we see, we have a lot of cases where Christian women sue to be able to do this and are successful. And then I have this really interesting uh, response from, uh, from Rabbi Solomon Ibn Adret, which looks at, the, which is kind of this case where there's this Jewish woman who does this in a Christian court, and uh, he is not very happy. Uh, so the case comes to him because the uh, man in question has both a has both a Christian debtors and at least one Jewish debtor. And the Jewish debtor goes to you know ask this question like, I still want my money back. I don't think this is a valid excuse for him to not give me my money back. And uh, Ibn Adrat sides with him with the creditor and saying, Yeah, no, she had no right to do this. And so you know, you still out of whatever wealth this couple has, you still have to pay back this uh, this this Jewish creditor. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, you mentioned the, the, which is the Rajba's Chuva, which we have many Chuvas from him and, and they're in, oh, in, yes. in Catalonia, especially there are a lot of them because I uh, who I don't know how many Chuvas we have, but Ramban, we have the Rajba, mm-hmm. we have, the Ramban, we have the re, there's, later on is the Rivash and you have the Ritva, Rabbi Yom Tov Ben Avram is really, really how you pronounce the last name. So you have, you have, there's, there's a lot of response mm-hmm. and, and this is something that you yes. have as well, besides notarial documents in here. So, um, something else that you mentioned over here also is woman in Jewish inheritance law and what happens yes. when it comes to Yerusha. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that is one of the other big differences is that in the local Christian context, uh, so essentially I would say kind of both Jews and Christians are often practicing some form of partable inheritance. Or in other words, that they're dividing the estate between their children. Christians often tend to include daughters as well as sons in that. Uh, Jews often don't. And this is something, of course, that is justified in Jewish inheritance law, that it act that it does in fact state that if you have if you have daughters, the daughters, of course, inherit, but that if you have both sons and daughters, 
the sons inherit and the daughters do not have an inheritance claim. And so this is something that I see coming up in the records that we that we do often see cases in which that is the choice that's made, that fathers uh, in particular and mothers, for that matter, of daughters uh, either give uh, either give nothing or give very little to their daughters when they also have sons. Now, you mentioned you see this in the records. This is, so this is something generally they would use. The, so we should mention the community was self-governed at this time. Right? The Jewish community governed itself. And mm-hmm. they, were, they were conforming to halacha. They were Jew, they were using Jewish documents. So this is something that you're seeing, though, in the when we're talking about the notaries, that's the Christian notaries. So they were going yes. to the kind of, I would call it secular Christian. They were going to the non-Jewish notaries. Is that something that they were using? Was that a yes. common thing? That's what you're referring to. Yeah. So I would say it's, it's not common, but it's also not unheard of. And there's a couple of different ways in which this is coming up, I will say. And this is something that I'm actually going to be talking about more in my next project. So one of the things that we're seeing is that there is a relatively small number of Jews who make the choice, but, you know, certainly not non-existent that, you know, we, I have at this point, uh, now that I've kind of started looking into this more specifically, I have a couple hundred contracts that taught that, you know, are, you know, related to this, that we do have some Jews who choose to draw up wills or marriage contracts or divorce documents with Christian notaries. And these aren't necessarily replacing Jewish halachic documents, right? That uh, especially when you're talking about marriage and divorce contracts, they'll often even explicitly reference the fact that, as it also says in my ketubah, um, or, and also just so you know, you know, this way, you know, I, I am definitely divorced because I have received a get. And so you have these uh, kind of clear references to the fact that we also have uh, Jewish documents drawn up in accordance with halacha, but that they're also using the notaries. And so you have that. And then you also have all of the other contracts that get created in the context of kind of working with Christian notaries uh, because Jews are transacting all the time with Christians that Jews and that, you know, it's a minority community. They need essentially to spend a lot of time doing business with Christians. And so then there's all of these other things that come up in terms of, okay, maybe I only drew up a Hebrew will, but then I need to kind of talk about what this arrangement is and explain this to a Christian notary because now this property that I've inherited, I want to sell to a Christian buyer. And uh, so you also have these other kinds of citations of Hebrew contracts that come up as well. And uh, these other kind of moments where we see kind of even if, as I said, even if they've mostly used Hebrew contracts to kind of make the arrangements in the first place, they then have to explain this to Christian notaries in terms of saying, I'm so-and-so's heir. And so this is why I can sell this property, or this is why I can collect on this debt, et cetera. So did they go then to the notaries for a, not at always, but it was a lot because they were interacting with Christians or were there's brothers or there were just sometimes there's, you don't know, there's, they just went to the Christian notary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think often it, so often it is because of the fact that they're interacting with Christians and sometimes it's because, well, in the case of loans, they're actually required to register a loan to Christians with a Christian notary. So there's that case. And then there's other things where just if you're selling property to Christians, it sort of makes sense given the power dynamics at play, right? That ultimately, if you're when you're going to have that contract drawn up, it's going to be with a Christian notary, you know, members of the ruling faith, the majority faith, as opposed to a Jewish notary or scribe. So if you're doing any business with Christians, that's pretty much automatic. 
And then you have this the kind of business that's done between Jews, uh, including then things like, as I said, these wills or marriage contracts. And I think a lot of the reason behind this has to do with the fact that, okay, this particular you know business or family arrangement is only within the Jewish community. But we're still sort of assuming that we are going to have to do business with Christians in the future. And so I think that's a lot of what's behind it is that, yes, you can use Hebrew documents as valid forms of proof, but then you might run into, okay, do you need to get a translation made? Uh, How much can you rely on the people who are involved in this particular court? you know, basically believing you as to what the document says, because they don't know what it says. They don't read Hebrew. And so I think it often kind of seems like it could be simpler or a useful form of additional protection to have this Latin document as well drawn up in accordance with Christian legal culture. Okay. Now, obviously this, as, as you mentioned before, the Rajba, and then I'm sure there are other Rabban, I don't know if you have to mention where they were, I guess, anti this, that they were going to these using Christian notarial documents and then being involved with the non-Jewish courts as well. This is not something that they were pro So this is actually something that I am delving into in more detail for my next project and that I find really fascinating. They do not like Jews going to non-Jewish courts. That is very bad. That is a problem. The question of whether Jews can go to a Christian notary and draw up a will or a marriage contract, that's a little bit more complicated And there are certainly rabbis that basically say, yeah, you can, and it's valid. Uh, Even even the Rashba, who is not always necessarily the most most eager to uh, encourage this kind of behavior, and especially is kind of very not on board with Jews going to Christian courts, says basically, yeah, no, you can, it's okay if you draw up, if you draw up a will, that's a valid will. And so we have this kind of really interesting dynamic where the rabbis do see use of Christian notaries as something different from the use of Christian courts, or at least uh, kind of some rabbis do. Interesting. Okay. And 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 even on, on that chapter, I mean, throughout the book over here, you do discuss, there are more chuvas, I know you discussed in the ritual, like I mentioned, and, and there are other, um, there are specific, a lot of specific stories. I don't know if any specific stories you had to mention yes. in the marriage context or inheritance. If you wanted to mention any, mm-hmm. there's a lot of interesting stories that you mentioned. The yeah. Yeah, that I, I mean, I found just such fascinating case studies. So probably one of my favorites is uh, Bonadona, the widow of Astrid Karavida. And uh, this is actually a case that I find really interesting too, from this inheritance perspective, because her husband is essentially kind of uh, behaving rather flexibly toward Jewish inheritance law, but is actually doing it with a Hebrew document. So uh, that we have, we just have this woman and all of a sudden she shows up after her husband has died and is collecting on his debts. And what she at least tells the notary, is that she gets to do so because she has a Hebrew contract where her husband gave her uh, control over, you know, right to collect on all of his debts and all of his goods, Uh, which is, you know, technically uh, wives are not supposed to inherit from their husbands. And he actually has daughters who are supposed to be his heirs, according to Jewish inheritance law, who he is then functionally disinheriting, at least uh, during his wife's lifetime. 
And, uh, you know, but that she, you know, nevertheless is doing this. And she becomes really prominent as a lender. She's one of the kind of most prominent Jewish women money lenders that we see in Girona because she kind of has this ability to do so and this kind of really striking control over family wealth. And she's, uh, she's an interesting figure in a lot of ways in that we also have other documentation. And uh, I have not worked on this in uh, much detail, but uh, Pinchas Roth, another uh, a scholar who has an excellent new book out, but who also has a great article where he actually has looked at a lot of the two votes, uh, actually talking about uh, Bona Dodas basically trying to intervene in uh, helping her daughter get a divorce and collect her property appropriate and can, you know, collect whatever's owed to her in the, in the wake of this divorce. Yeah, I've actually had Pinchas Roth on about, I think it was ah, that book. Good. Yeah, this book a while, yeah. uh, about a year or two ago. I don't recall at this point, but he was on he was on the podcast as well. So, um, but something else interesting about her is that she went to the notary. So when we were discussing yes. before, Jews using Christian notaries, you were referring, we should make clear, you're referring to men as well, not only women. It oh, was yes. Everything. And that was not. Yes, absolutely. Place. How is it rarer? How rare is it for a woman, a Jewish woman to go to a Christian notary as opposed to Jewish men? much rarer. So Jewish men are there all the time. Uh, you know, just, you know, you see them all over the place. Uh, Jewish women, much, much less common. Uh, and this is also something that I think is really important, kind of going back in some ways to the question of, okay, how are we thinking about or sort of why why women, right? That one of the things that I think is interesting is that, you know, we have all of these uh, kind of conversations that we have in terms of talking about, say, how integrated are Jews into the surrounding society, right? And that many people, many scholars have pointed to the, well, and Jews are always going to the notary. And, you know, and maybe sometimes they're going there because they have to. It doesn't always mean that they really like the Christian notaries, but that at least they have this familiarity. They have this kind of constant presence in notarial culture, Women really don't. That for women, this is something that would be very rare. And one of the suggestions that I make, especially so I'm looking at, uh, so looking at in the wake of the Black Death, we have a lot of widows. And suddenly after the Black Death, women's involvement, Jewish women's involvement in credit skyrockets. It goes from Jewish women are making 2% of Jewish loans to Jewish women are making 20% of Jewish loans in Barcelona right after the Black Death. And, and this is, I think, because, you know, so clearly a lot of people have died in general. It's possible that either there are more young widows because their husbands might have been a bit older. We do think there is perhaps kind of some possibility in terms of Black death mortality rates that it might have slightly more heavily affected a slightly older population. So it could be that. Uh, it could be also that there are massacres of Jews that take place in Barcelona because they are essentially they are accused of causing the Black Death and uh, that it might be that men, perhaps because they're sort of out and about in public somewhat more, are more likely to be killed in the uh, in the course of these massacres. Uh, but so for whatever reason, we see that suddenly there are all of these widows who are kind of all over the place and then they disappear. And a lot of them seem like they get remarried. A lot of them have uh, uh, sons that are minors who then grow to adulthood and then they basically take over and there are different possibilities of what could be happening here. One certainly is that women are being forced out, but another is that they've never done this before and it's a little bit uncomfortable and unfamiliar. And should we necessarily assume that they are enthusiastic about doing this as opposed to this is something I have to do? And if I could then kind of avoid doing it in the future, this kind of weird thing that is maybe sort of awkward and uncomfortable and I have to be with all of these 
strange Christian men, and there's good reasons why a Jewish woman in the Middle Ages might feel uncomfortable around a bunch of strange Christian men, you know, maybe she doesn't necessarily want to do this all the time if she doesn't have to. And I want to I want to pick up on that in a second. But before that, if you, if you just I don't know if you want to just say about the Black Death and what time period you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, just briefly. Yes. So the uh, the Black Death, of course, our uh, most most famous medieval pandemic uh, hit Barcelona in uh, May of 1348. And uh, so, uh, you know, we then ha- and uh, it's a really high mortality rate. So, you know, medieval medieval statistics and demography is uh, sort of. Uh, an, an odd field in that we usually, you know, we really don't quite have these statistics that we do in modern contexts. Uh, but there are people who think that, you know, this could be this could be something that might have killed up to about half the population in Barcelona um, and in some of the other places that kind of big cities in this area. And as mentioned as well, that there are some places in Barcelona is among them where Jews, where either Jews are directly accused of causing the Black Death by poisoning the wells or where there is a well, maybe the reason we're suffering from this disease or that God has sent this disease is because God is punishing us Christians uh, for the sins of the Jews. And maybe the fact that, you know, we've we've been a little too nice to the Jews, which, you know, when, when they say that, they almost never have been too nice to the Jews. But, uh, you know, and uh, so you have some places where, yeah, where you have these massacres that are affecting the Jewish community as well, um, as, of course, also dying of the Black Death. Yeah, and about the well poisoning accusations, I'll point listeners to the podcast episode I did with Safriya Brazila and his new book about that. Ah, uh, yes, excellent work. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now just getting back to what you mentioned about how after the Black Death, then we see them, you know, peter out the woman involved. That maybe said it was, it was was not so common for them. So I mean, that's that is a question I think gets to I guess a lot of what we're discussing is how common mm-hmm. was it really for them to be involved in things like money lending or these other professions, or how. How much of an outlier is somewhat, like you said, after the Black Death of these documentations mm-hmm. that we have? I mean, obviously, we can't know for sure everything. You don't have all of that. Yeah. But what, based on what your research has shown you, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so my sense is that it is relatively rare. And I don't want to necessarily make a kind of demographic claim exactly. But I'm going to say, like, it's not common, uh, with my one exception being uh, being Veek, which is Veek is weird. Uh, I'll Maybe I'll put a pin in that and come back to Veek later. But when we're talking about Barcelona and Girona and basically everywhere else that anyone has studied in this region, it's pretty uncommon. And it's more uncommon for Jewish women than it is for Christian women that when I'm, you know, which I, you can't necessarily compare them directly to each other, right? Because then you get into complicated issues about, okay, there's, you know, there are fewer Jewish women total, but essentially I compare both to men of their own group, right? So I can say, okay, Jewish women, most of the time are extending 2% of the loans made by Jews. Christian women are making 10% of the loans made by Christians, uh, and that I, you know, also there's, you know, things like apprenticeship contracts, which I occasionally see Jewish men in, and I have no examples of Jewish women. Uh, so that, you know, you you do get this sense, certainly that, A, first of all, for, uh, you know, for women in general, I certainly would not assume that kind of this level of activity is normal. Uh, and that for Jewish women in particular, it's something that is very uncommon, which I see as being related to a couple of different things we've talked about. One is because some of the ways in which halakha is interpreted in this context, women do, Jewish women do tend to have less of a kind of firm claim over financial resources than Christian women in this region do. And then part of it also, I think, is because I think they have a really different relationship to notarial culture that I think the level of comfort they have and 
the level of comfort maybe that, you know, the men around them have about them doing this, some combination of the two, is really different from uh, what Christian women experience who kind of grow up uh, with notarial culture in some ways. Right. Okay, so let's go to Vig. Let's discuss the, the yeah. I mean, where where you have a, a nice graph, there's a chart in the book on page 160, where you you go through the years and the Jewish loans to Christians and the loans are extended by Jewish women. I'll just read in, in 1250 to 1260, it was 27%. After that, it's 38%, 23% of the loans. I mean, there's a very, very high percentage being yes. Jewish woman. I don't know if you can speak about the other Barcelona and Girona, where it's much lower. And talk about yes. what's going on. Yeah. So so as I said, just to kind of give that sense of comparison, until this kind of weird period right after the Black Death, most of the time in both Barcelona and Girona, it's about 2%. There's other places I've looked at where it's maybe 4 or 5%. But that's that's really the peak in most places. And then you have Vic, where, as you said, right, it's, it's approaching 40% in the 1260s. And this, I think, has a lot to do with the fact, first of all, that it is a very small community and it's a new community that it's really only in the mid-13th century that you actually have Jews who are full-time residents of Vic at all. And I think the case of Vic really points to some of the ways in which especially maybe when we're looking at these small communities that really kind of uh, particular idiosyncratic local and family dynamics can really make a big difference. And so my suggestion for what it is that's going on in Vic is that uh, you have this real, this uh, this one particular couple, uh, so who are among the kind of founding members of the Jewish community of Vic, uh, this man David Canviador and his wife Gutsch. And uh, so these, uh, these uh, which by the way is spelled G-O-I-G for uh, anyone who wants to explore their Catalan pronunciations. And uh, what you tend to see in most cities, right, is that if it is a family who is involved full or part-time in money lending, that that's technically something, that that tends to be something that the male head of the household is probably the person who is involved in doing that. And then in this particular family, you have this couple where he's, I mean, he's alive, he's around, but he's very much, money lending is not what he's doing. It's possible based on his last name, Canviador, that he's a money changer, but that's not definite. He could be doing something else entirely. We have no idea. We know that Jews are doing a lot of different things other than money lending. Money lending just is the best documented one. And uh, so in this particular family, essentially that, you know, he's doing whatever he's doing. And she's then the one who ends up taking the responsibility for being the one who is involved uh, in their household in credit. And uh, so that you have this really, really different uh, kind of household or family dynamic that's set up with this couple who are among the kind of founding members of the community. And when I say it's a small community, really, when you're looking at these first couple of generations... A lot of people in this community are people who are relatives of Gotch. That when you look at the next generation, where I still see a pretty high level of women involved in money lending, it includes Gotch's niece, it includes her daughters in law. And so it's, you know, it is really interesting to think about, you know, okay, we have this really, really weird case, but is it just basically because this one family made this different decision? for their own kind of particular and idiosyncratic reasons, and that that ended up having this, uh, you know, really striking impact into the next generation or so. Because uh, it does go away eventually, as we kind of get into the 1330s and 1340s, it goes down to, you know, what we see for elsewhere in the region. I think it's, you know, maybe 5% in the 1330s, and then down to 2% in the 1340s. So is that, I was going to ask you, is that why, this is, for the, is that the reason for the decline? Because of her family? I, 
or the, and her family is still around, but I think there is maybe a kind of dissipation of, you know, the historical memory, right? That, you know, maybe the, the this kind of influence is something, you know, and her impact kind of lasts into the next generation, but maybe not so dramatically as we kind of move into the next generation. You know, also, I think related to the fact that we have maybe more families coming in who aren't this particular woman's direct relatives. Uh, so yeah, that we, you know, that we eventually see it kind of looking like more, more like the other places in Catalonia. Okay, I want to um, go to something else that you discussed. That, so that's actually later in the book. I'll just for people mm-hmm. this is early in the book. But something that you you mentioned is that you know in these uh, notarial documents, the Jews are referred to as Jew, right? Everyone is it's yes. not your name. Whereas to so talk about that, when you're a Christian, they have just their name. But when it's a Jew, it's Jew. This they have their name. Yes. So, and this is something that uh, is is a kind of combination of uh, doesn't say much great from the perspective of medieval Jewish-Christian relations, but is really convenient for historians. Because uh, I've asked sometimes, essentially, how do you actually know if you're looking at documentation, who's Jewish and who's Christian? Uh, and, And part of the answer is that the names do tend to be different, that there's a kind of different set of names that you see for Jews versus for Christians with a little bit of overlap, but not too much. Uh, But the other very obvious one is that Jews are literally labeled as such, that you are constantly referred to as so-and-so the Jew, or often what you actually see in practice in these particular cities, at least, is that uh, it actually tends to refer to women often as being the the wife of so-and-so the Jew, as opposed to her kind of, as opposed to using the Latin Judea to refer to her directly. It just kind of identifies her husband or her father as being Jewish. And you are supposed to sort of extrapolate from there since we we don't really have intermarriage in this particular era. Uh, so yeah, so we have this kind of labeling practice and Christians then are very literally an unmarked category that being Christian is the default. It's, you know, is treated as the norm. And so there's all of these other ways in which you identify Christians. You identify Christians by what street they live on. You identify Christians by what profession they practice. And Jews, it's really only this identification, you know, family identifications, but then also, yeah, so-and-so the Jew, which very much highlights the fact that, yeah, they are a visible minority in some ways. Uh, So this is a period in which you know, they, which, uh, you know, so there are these uh, uh, laws that are increasingly being passed in the 13th and 14th centuries that require that Jews wear some kind of distinguishing marker on their clothing. Uh, going back in uh, this particular context to the uh, the a church council, the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, and that it's something that, you know, the church says this, that doesn't mean it actually happens, but that you do see it being passed uh, on as kind of legislation on a local level. And we have a lot of the kind of regulations of this in Barcelona, for example. And, uh, you know, and what the, to some extent, what this emphasizes this kind of requirement is that you can't necessarily tell just by looking at somebody, of course, that they're Jewish, that Jews don't necessarily on their own uh, choose to dress differently from Christians. They don't necessarily, you know, visually look di- uh, particularly different from Christians, but that you still, you know, that's still, that's part of your identity, that that would be the kind of first thing that would come up uh, when there is a question of how the notary is going to identify you in order to make clear precisely who you are in the documentary record. And and I found this very interesting where in the book you, you talk about where there is even sometimes specific registers just for Jews that the notaries would have. And, and you include a uh, the cover of one where there's a striking anti-Semitic, I guess you call it image, yes. your anti-Jewish image of the pointed hat, a long nose, mm-hmm. a long beard. I mean, talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, so uh, this is us. Uh, this is in Vik, and it's one of the. Uh, they're called in Latin the Libri Judeorum, so literally books of the Jews. And uh, these are specially designated registers that essentially uh, kind of segregate to Jewish transactions. And in Vik, in particular, the vast majority of the documentation involving Jews is in these designated registers. And yeah, and one of them has on this on the cover this caricature, which is then actually labeled with a name. Uh, it's labeled with the name Salomo Vidal, who is a you know active moneylender who appears on many many of the pages of this very same register. Uh, interestingly, his wife actually does as well, but you know she doesn't she doesn't get a picture. Um, and yeah, and I think it really does. You know, obviously, you know we you know, that's all we have, right? We have other documents for our, you know, images from the same period where these kinds of visual caricatures and visual signifiers of Jewishness are accompanied by other things that are really kind of intensely and vitriolically anti-Jewish. So that sometimes that kind of same imagery is is kind of linked with narratives that portray Jews as greedy or uh, are they kind of incorporated in images that talk about Jews as killers of Jesus, uh, so sometimes it is connected with this kind, these kind of other things. Here it is sort of disconnected, but still it's very hard looking at this image and not feel like it is an anti-Jewish caricature and, uh, you know, and like it is potentially hostile, which then, you know, raises a lot of questions about what the experience of going to the notary is actually like. Uh, for for a Jew who, you know, you have to you have to go there, you have to be identified as a Jew. You might have to confront the fact that, you know, this is maybe how how the notary sees me, perhaps regardless of what I actually look like, is in this kind of really caricatured way. And I think this is something that is uh, that is kind of worth thinking about, again, kind of going back to this question of sort of integration or not, that on the one hand, yeah, I mean, we're talking in terms of, you know, Salomo Vidal in particular, uh, we obviously can't know what he was thinking, but, you know, to, you know, to try and kind of consider, all right, this is somebody who goes to the notary all the time that he is clearly very familiar with, in fact, probably very, the, the specific person who drew this is probably somebody that he spent a decent amount of time with and perhaps knew relatively well. And how do you, you know, and how do you deal with the fact that, you know, this is how this person then sees me in this uh, really kind of stereotypical and caricatured way. Yeah, just something very interesting. It was interesting to see the the picture. So uh, we've discussed a bit about credit. Now, what about real estate? Something you mentioned as mm-hmm. well, the real estate market, especially women in, in, in property and managing property, mm-hmm. owning and selling real estate. So uh, that's something else that you discuss a fair bit. So we should probably talk mm-hmm. about that. Yes. Uh, so one of the things, of course, to highlight as well is that there is, uh, I would say, a pretty kind of prominent myth that often comes up that Jews are not allowed to own land in the Middle Ages. And that is, in the vast majority of places, not true. So Jews uh, absolutely own land, and they own land both within local urban Jewish quarters and also outside of local Jewish quarters. So they own, for example, rural agricultural land, which sometimes they're working themselves most of the documents that I have involve people who are relatively wealthy and who are then renting out the land to be worked by somebody else. But that, you know, Jews absolutely are landowners. And that's one of the things that I found really striking in the documentation as well, is that uh, this is actually the area where Jewish and Christian women are are still somewhat different and Christian women are still somewhat more active, but they actually look more alike in the real estate market in terms of the kinds of things that they're doing, uh, that we really do see that, you know, there is a kind of emphasis on the fact that, yeah, women, women can own property and that for some women, and I see this kind of more being kind of more central within the Christian community, but 
within the Jewish community as well, that this is potentially a kind of good way for you to uh, continue to kind of grow your wealth as uh, you know, as some you know, as a widow, for example, right? That you might have a kind of physical piece of property that you would lease out and collect the rents from, uh, or you might own your home. Uh, you know, some combination of these things. And maybe if you own your home, you know, maybe you don't actually live in the whole building. Maybe you rent out a part of it as an apartment, essentially. Uh, so that, yeah, you uh, you really see that the kind of ownership and uh, use of uh, real property is something that is really important in, uh, especially when you're talking about the wealthiest women that can be really important in their in their kind of financial strategies. And is this something, I think this, this question kind of goes to real estate and credit. I didn't mm-hmm. say this enough. Does this kind of, uh, uh, the woman generally always, or is this something that only when they're, once they're widowed, that we see them being more involved in these businesses, I guess, call it. Yeah. So I'd say widow, it's, uh, you see widows more. And in particular, I would say in the Jewish community, because I think of the kind of, you know, restrictions on exactly kind of what things look like in terms of a kind of women's control over, you know, wives control over kind of shared family property. Uh, widows are much more prominent, but why, but, you know, married women definitely appear as well. Uh, and that's true in both the Jewish and Christian communities. And one of the things that does actually come up is that because essentially real estate looks a bit different also from cash in terms of how people think about it, um, that just fun, there is fundamentally a kind of understanding of cash as something that is, fungible and transformable that you don't expect. For example, if you, you know, today, right, if you lend somebody $10, even if you hand them $10 in cash, you don't expect that you're getting back that same physical $10 bill when you're eventually repaid. Whereas if you, you know, rented a house to somebody, you expect that you're getting back that house eventually. Um, and so that is, and so that is also something that people, uh, Jews as well as Christians, are very much aware of in terms of how they're thinking about property in particular. And so there are somewhat different rules in place that actually have the potential to give uh, women at least more ability to have some kind of control over property, even when they're married. Uh, so that you do see, for example, uh, Jewish couples that are selling property together. And uh, it doesn't necessarily mean, and uh, Ibn Adret in particular takes pains at points to emphasize this, that doesn't mean that she owns the property, the fact that she bought it with her husband or sells it with her husband. That doesn't mean she owns it, but that there is this sense that, okay, just to kind of make sure that everything's above board and that she can't say later, well, this sale was made without my consent and maybe this property is something that he pledged toward, you know, the return of my dowry, you can, you know, you can kind of have her be involved in this particular way to kind of avoid those problems down the line. So I guess just to really, you know, finish up in, in, in you know, in closing really is we've discussed a lot of women and, and discussed the men as well, but especially the woman in the, in this area in Barcelona, Girona and Vic, <clears throat> do we know, do you know how this compares to women being involved in these kind of fields and in work and generally speaking, in other parts of Europe in this time period? Mm-hmm. Yes, I'd say so. Uh, it, it certainly gets complicated in terms of being able to say anything really definitive, because sometimes in terms of the records that we have available to us, it is arguably kind of apples and oranges that we sometimes have. Uh, so for Castile example, we just have significantly fewer of this sort of records. Uh, uh, we have kind of some records in Northern Europe, but often very kind of different kinds of records that we're working with. So it is a complicated question. But what I think I can say is that 
what we see here is probably relatively similar to what things look like in southern France, which I think is interesting in terms of thinking of that as a really culturally connected uh, community and place. Uh, probably my sort of feeling uh, based on, you know, what other scholars have argued is that women here seem to, I think, be generally uh, kind of more prominent and more active in these kind of public forms of work than they are in the Italian peninsula and probably somewhat less so, especially when we're talking about Jewish women, when we make comparisons with Northern Europe. But at the same time, I think also... One of the things that I kind of think about in this book is trying to kind of complicate that a little bit that I that I don't think we see quite the that I think the you know we have there's this kind of idea often that comes up in the scholarship of Mediterranean women versus northern women. And I think what I find really complicates that. I think it especially does for Christian women. I think the idea that you know Christian that that Christian women are doing much better in the north versus the Mediterranean is kind of undermined by what I see for Catalonia. Uh, I think that it still holds true to some extent for Jewish women, but that on the other hand, in a lot of, uh, in at least some of the places where we kind of talk about, oh, Jewish women are so active, it often is because we kind of have sort of a couple of individual women who seem really important or because we have kind of responsa talking about them. And we don't necessarily have the kind of source base like what I have here in terms of really being able to say, okay, here's the hard numbers. And uh, so, you know, it is potentially kind of, as I said, complicated to think about, can you directly compare them and how much would our distinctions actually be borne out if you had fully comparable records from both places? Right. Um, okay. So about the book, I mean, I first will say that we, there is more discussion of Christian women that we didn't, you know, focus on here, obviously focusing on the, on the Jewish woman aspect of things. And, and, and there's a, many more stories that we didn't get to. There's more response and more truths discussed. There's a lot of percentages and charts and kind of graphs for people interested in seeing exact numbers. You actually have the documentation. So you brought that down, which is very mm -hmm. interesting to see. And I'll, I'll link to the book in the show's notes for those interested in purchasing it and they can read more and because like i said there's just a lot more that a lot of special especially specific examples that we could not yes and if i could actually just add one more thing just to kind of get a sense of the scope of this uh i at some point kind of lo looked at all of my numbers and in total i think i looked at and this isn't even in, uh, including the two votes uh but even just the notarial contracts i looked at about twenty thousand in total that kind of go into this project. So really just wanted to emphasize that people often think of the Middle Ages as having kind of a paucity of sources. And uh, that is not true for this area. If anything, I have way too many sources. So uh, that really, you know, I'm able to kind of access a really rich array of material as a basis for this. So let me just follow up on that. So how you say 20,000, one document, <clears throat> how big is that document generally? What does it kind of say? One of these, we should, I should have asked this. Yeah. Depends on the document. A loan contract, probably four or five, six lines. And it's like very, very basic. A real estate contract, because it goes into, you know, the, these are like the boundaries of the property and all of these things that, you know, things like a marriage contract, those are a lot longer. Those could be a couple of pages. Uh, sometimes they come across, say, for example, inventories that are being drawn up of all of the goods in a particular household. So especially after maybe somebody dies and then uh, the heirs or the executors or the guardian of minor children have to do that. That could be like 10 pages if we're talking about a rich, you know, a rich person who has a lot of stuff. So uh, they they really vary. And what language or languages are these in? 
Uh, these are generally in Latin with usually some Catalan words here and there and some uh, often poor transliterations of Hebrew here and there in some of the uh, the Jewish documents that are the documents related to Jews. But yes, I'm mostly working with Latin source material. And I guess finally, where are, so are all these documents housed in one location? Are there multiple locations? Where did you access all these documents? Uh, multiple locations. So uh, all the things that I looked at are things that are over in actually these particular cities. So these three cities that I looked at, Barcelona, Girona, and Vic, I actually have spent a lot of time in each of those three cities and in their particular local archives is where uh, most of these things are located. Uh, so, you know, just uh, spending hours or at least as many hours as the archive is actually open for. Uh, I have a couple of archives that were open for a mere like four hours a day. Uh, but yeah, spending as much time as I can just, yeah, sitting down and really going through all of these things. Uh, it, we're starting to see more digitization, but still a lot of these things still are not digitized. So a lot of these things, you still actually have to go to the archive and spend some good quality time with the documents there. Well, fascinating. And then and then when it comes to the response to the Charles Vachubas, I mean, how did you find those that related to these specific areas? Is that something you have to search? Yeah. How those are all digitized? I mean, what did you, what did you do? Yes. Yeah, so uh, those I really relied mostly on kind of digitized source material. So, uh, you know, did, did some just kind of general research into who are the kind of local big name rabbis, right, in terms of whose material to kind of look for, and uh, actually really took advantage in particular and, you know, great resource for anyone interested in research involving responsa is, of course, the Barilan Responsa database, which uh, also has the great benefit that it is searchable. And so you can, you know, basically check like, all right, I want to look at by these like seven rabbis who are the, you know, rabbis based in and around Catalonia in the, you know, period that I'm interested in and can then do, you know, keyword searches for relevant topics. Got it. Okay. So that is, that is the book. So again, I will link in the show's notes. If anyone's interested, they can uh, check it out. And with that, thank you for joining me. Uh, to discuss the Thank book. you. Thank you so much for having me. This is great.